0: Today I want to talk about the holiness of God, and I appreciate the music that's been selected, the the thematically that's been put together very well. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What comes into the mind of America when America thinks about God? You know, after 9-11, and those of you who are 16 and younger may not remember 9-11. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> after 9-11, there was a prol- proliferation of signs, God bless America. Pray for America, right? You all saw that. We see signs everywhere in our country. We, we, Congress talks about praying to the Lord. We clearly think about God in this country. But I remember once in Orlando where we moved from passing on the way to church, and we had to do this every Sunday on the way to church, passing by a gentleman's club, which is such a poor name for it, a strip club. And on their sign it said, pray for our troops. Exactly. You see the irony there? I I, I don't even know what to say when I see a sign like that on a gentleman's club. You see, the vision of God in America is a grandfather type. When you go to see your grandfather, he stuffs a dollar bill into your hands. I know a lot of grandfathers who do. My kids have it done by other parents who aren't even their grandparents. <laughs> Loves you, doesn't see anything wrong that you do, certainly doesn't set any rules, and most obviously will never punish you. That's America's God. Is that God? that the God of the Bible? See, we've forgotten one key aspect of God's nature in our country, and that's his holiness. You know, the story that was read today, let me give you some of the circumstances behind it. Moses had led the people out of Egypt, many miracles, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army destroyed there. But they doubted God's promise of the land. When they came up right to the edge of it, they said, the people are too big, we can't do it because of their lack of faith, they were left to wander in the desert 40 years. Those 40 years are over now. They've been completed. That generation has died off. They were unfaithful, and God said no one of that generation except Joshua and Caleb would enter the promised land. They're now faced with a second exodus. If you think about it, it's very similar. They have to cross a body of water to get into the promised land. A great miracle is done, and they walk through on dry land, the crossing of the Jordan. Joshua's like the second Moses. They celebrate the Passover as soon as they are across the land, just like they'd celebrated the Passover as they came out of Egypt. And the city of Jericho had just fallen without a single weapon of war being raised, very similar to how Pharaoh's army was destroyed in the Red Sea when the water came back without a single weapon raised. See, God is establishing again what he had tried to do 40 years earlier, but the people had a lack of faith. His covenant people, committed to him, are taking the promised land. God had given a very clear command, which we didn't read. It's in the prior chapter. If you look at Joshua 6, 18 and 19, he says, But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. It was very clear when they took Jericho. This was God's victory. Later on, they could take plunder and loot, but not this one. God was establishing at the outset this was going to be his campaign. He was going to give them the promised land. They were not taking it by their military might. It was by faith. And so everything in Jericho was sacred to him. Do not touch it. You will bring destruction on the camp of Israel. But we know one man did, Achan. So when they attack Ai the next week, they send 3,000 men. It's a small town. They know the Lord is on their side. All they did was walk around Jericho and the walls fell in. What do they need to do to take this little town of Ai? They need the Lord. And the Lord was not with them because they had violated his clear command. And they lost 36 men, were humiliated in defeat. That's where we come to now, chapter 7. You know, and from a human perspective, we think, gee, it was one sin, one man. What, do you know how many fighting men they had in their army? Over 600,000. We know that from Numbers 26:51. 601,730 fighting men. One acted unfaithfully. That means they were 99.9998% obedient. I did the math. (laughs) That's like someone gives you $10,000 in all sorts of bills and monetary units. You stuff it into every pocket you have, and you walk home. When you get home, you lay it all out, and you count it, and you're two pennies short. So you go back, and you... No. No. You don't go back and you look for the two pennies, do you? You still have the $10,000. At least that's the way we look at it, isn't it? That's not the way God looked at this. Two pennies short of 10000 and God was not pleased. You see, God's standard has never changed. It's still perfection. It always has been, and it always will. And actually, deep down, you're thankful for that. You don't want a God who compromises. That God cannot be worshiped. He's not worthy of worship if he compromises. He's not God. You see, the divine perspective is what we sang this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The prophet Isaiah, perhaps the most godly man in Israel at the time, 700 years before Christ, sees a vision of God. And what does he do? He says, woe, To me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I have seen the king. I am undone. I'm ruined. I'm destroyed. The godliest man in Israel sees the Lord, and his reaction is what? I'm dead. I don't have that perfection. He's God, and I'm not. I don't measure up. His standard is absolute obedience. And so here with the sin of Achan, it says in verse 1, his anger burned against Israel. You know, we think, well, it's just one sin. I mean, how does God look at it? Why does he look at it so, so horribly? Did you notice in verse 11, God uses six words to describe what Achan did. Six different words in verse 11. He says to Joshua, first of all, get up. He says, Israel has sinned. Number one, they have violated my covenant. Number two, they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. And they have put them with their own possessions. It's pretty clear to God. Six different words he uses describing what happened. And in verse 15, he calls it disgraceful. Utterly disgraceful. Here is his covenant people. Bringing them into the promised land. And they have sin among them. Their God must be just like every other God. He doesn't require anything different. Oh, yes, he does. You know, and it's not just Achan who suffers. And we'll get to what happened to Achan. But do you see the consequences of his sin on others in this story? Right from the start, what happens to the army? Thirty-six men died. Do you know that's thirty-six widows? And maybe a hundred fatherless children? His sin had consequence far reaching past his own life. What about the nation? Verse 5 says they were in fear. Gripped with fear. This is the nation that was so proud and just having taken Jericho full of confidence in the Lord. And now they tremble in fear. The entire nation is gripped with fear. Verses 6-9, through nine, the elders and Joshua, they fall down before the Lord with grief and shame and fear. The leaders of the people. And even Joshua points out, what about your own name, God? What about the name of God? It's tarnished. In chapter 5, Rahab said when the spies came, she said, Our whole land has heard about you and we quake with fear because of the name of the Lord of your, of your God. But now, let's look ahead to chapter 9. They've heard of what Ai did. Now are all the nations quaking in fear? 9, 1, and 2. When all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. Why? Because they have a weakness. They can be taken now. The name of God isn't so mighty anymore. All that, consequences of one man's sin, to even the name of God himself no longer being regarded as something to be feared and in awe. Those are just the consequences of sin, though. What was the judgment for the sin? Well, that was what happened to Achan and his family. You know, and it's pretty tough for us to look at that and read it. But we need to. The end of chapter 7, 22 through 26, what happened to Achan? Stoned. And then burned. Just Achan? No. His family. Wife, sons, daughters, cattle, sheep, donkeys, his tent. Everything that belonged to the man Achan was destroyed. Some would say, yes, but he repented. Why didn't God have mercy on him when he repented? Did he actually repent? Yes, he says. It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. But when did he say that? At what point in this process did he come to that? Only after he was taken. Not after the 36 men died and he realized what he had done was wrong. Not after Joshua says, there's sin among the camp and we need to find where it is. He didn't come forward then and say, it is I. Not after his tribe was taken or his clan or his family Not till the very end, till his name was taken. He was hiding, hiding, hiding. There's no repentance there. And you would say, okay, but why his family? What did they have to do with it? You know, I can't answer that entirely. One option is perhaps they saw him bury it. It was buried beneath his tent. It wasn't hidden out in the mountain somewhere. It's very possible they were complicit in what he did. I don't know. It doesn't indicate that. But it's very possible. But at the least, his family suffered because of his choices. And he was the leader of his family. And how many of us, and I know I'm one, our family has suffered because of sins we have committed. It's true, isn't it? Sin's nasty. You know, the punishment for sin has always been and always will be That's nothing new. First sin in the Bible, Adam and Eve, what did God do? Killed two innocent animals, took their skins, made coverings for Adam and Eve to hide their shame of their nakedness, now that their eyes were open and they knew good and evil. Two innocent animals had to die. Right from the beginning, God is picturing death is the only only acceptable response to sin. And the innocent die for the guilty. Then God sets up the sacrificial system all through the Old Testament. Same concept. Innocent animals take the place, substitute for guilty people. Until the ultimate Lamb of God comes. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's always death as a requirement for sin. Some would say, yeah, but the Old Testament God was an angry, vicious God and vengeful, and the God of the New Testament is merciful and kind. I know that's a popular thought, but it is not correct. It is unbiblical. First Samuel 15, the God of Israel will not lie or change his mind. He is not a man that he should change his mind. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. God is unchanging. What we fail to see is his mercy in the Old Testament. It's there. We just don't think about it. Do you realize they're coming into the promised land? And my grandmother struggled all her life. She passed away last year. She struggled all her life with this idea that God would send in his people and they'd destroy the inhabitants of Canaan. Do you realize God waited 430 years for those people to repent? These were people, and it says in Leviticus 18, who were involved in adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, and bestiality. Just to name a few of the things they did commonly. And God waited 430 years for them to repent. Let me ask you, how long would you have waited? I'll tell you right now. My wife and I talk about this. We see the sins of our country, and we say, God's going to bring his judgment. We've left God, and we're going a different way. God's going to bring his judgment. And we think, I don't know, five years, 10, 25, 50 years, it's coming. We don't know that. God is incredibly, incredibly patient and gracious. 430 years he waited for these people to repent, and they would not. What about David? His adultery and his murder. Does it get much worse than adultery and then murder? Do you know what the sacrifice was for adultery and murder? There was none. There was no sacrifice in the Old Testament for premeditated sin. You just had to throw yourself at the mercy of God. The sacrifices are for those sins that you're not aware of or that you didn't mean to do or that just happened. It's the mercy of God. He says, Sacrifice and burnt offering I would bring, but you don't want, O Lord. The sacrifices you want are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And that's what I bring. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Psalm 51. David's life should have been taken. According to the law, David should have died by stoning. And his life was spared. What about Nineveh? Tyre, city of Nineveh, 120,000 people. Nothing to do with the Lord. Absolutely nothing to do with the Lord. One prophet goes there, preaches a message that you're all going to die. They repent, and God says, it's off. They've repented, it's off. I'm looking for repentance. It's off. There's all sorts of mercy and grace in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. You just have to look for it. God says, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And then we fail to see his requirements in the New Testament. We think it's all love. What happened to Herod? He was speaking in Acts 12. And they said, this is not the voice of a man, but the voice of God. And Herod thought, yeah, I'll go along with that. And it says God struck him down and he died. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Acts 5. They come, they sell property, and they say, here's the money for the land. And by the way, that's all of it. We're giving all of it to the church because that's the kind of people we are. And they're struck down dead, both of them. And, you know, we'll celebrate the communion of the Lord a little bit later. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says... Some of you are sick and some of you have died because you are taking communion in an unlawful way. You are eating the meal before everyone else gets there selfishly. And when those who need the meal, because it was a full meal back then, you understand, when they got there, there was nothing left. And Paul says, what a mockery of the Lord's table. Something that he did unselfishly and you eat all the food. And Paul says, as a judgment, some of you are sick and some of you God has taken out. The requirement is still holiness, folks. It always has been, and it always will. And our God never, ever changes. So let me ask you this. If Isaiah said, Woe to me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why are you and why am i not consumed why are we not destroyed by this god by all rights we should be because of the grace of god extended to us in jesus christ that's the reason and i'm going to make a turning point now in my message you should not have been terribly encouraged until now that was not <laughs> that was not my intention but I don't want to gloss over the holiness of God. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but the wicked. In other words, God can do nothing for you if you think everything's a okay with me. No problem between me and God, we're good. You must first see your need, then you find help. I want to look at a few things that we have in Jesus Christ. If you want to jot these down on paper, this would be good. Jesus Christ is our punishment. He took our punishment. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. Turn there with me. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. I'm going to give you seven things that Jesus Christ is. The first is, he's our punishment. He took our punishment. God still requires the consequences of sin and death. It's not that he waived it. He applied it to his own son. That's the incredible truth when we come to this table. It's not that God no longer requires death because of sin. It's that he chose to take it for you. Out of love and obedience to his father's will. Before time began, he planned it that way. Jesus Christ is our mediator. First Timothy two five. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It says in Hebrews four, He's our high priest who stands between us and God. Lest we think We can enter the presence of God on our own. We cannot. Do you know why our praises this morning are acceptable to God? Do you know why he hears your prayers? Do you know why he accepts your worship, my worship, in song, in speaking, in fellowship, and at the table? Because Jesus Christ has made it acceptable. If you don't come by Jesus Christ, you don't come at all. our defender. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I write these things to you so you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, huh, sounds like John knew us pretty well. We have an advocate who stands before the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What a picture of God Almighty in heaven. That's just telling me how much time I have left. God Almighty in heaven, with Jesus Christ pleading our cause before Him, I died for that soul. The punishment they deserve, I took. I took. Our defender. Fourthly, our brother. Ephesians 1 5, we were adopted as sons, family, because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, my brother. I have an inheritance, Peter says in the kingdom of God because of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, our peace. Romans 5.1 Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Colossians says we were enemies of God before Christ, but he reconciled us And now we are at peace with him. Do you sense that peace this morning because of Jesus Christ? Sixth, our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this the great exchange. At Calvary, he took my sin, and he gave me his righteousness. So that God looked on Christ and saw nothing but the ugliness of sin and forsook him at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out. Because he was black with your sin and mine. But he gave to us his righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see me. He sees Jesus Christ in you. Jesus Christ is what he sees. Lastly, he is our holiness. And this is where we began this morning, isn't it? Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Wow. In his sight, he sees you and me as holy. Not that we are, but he sees us that way. It's like a father to his son or his daughter, and I understand this well. I know they mess up, but I always see them as beloved. I can't help that. They're mine. You understand that. God sees us that way because of Jesus Christ. In his sight we are regarded as holy. So how do we stand before a holy God? We stand behind Jesus and we cling to Him. Why are we not consumed? Because of Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are this morning. But three challenges for you. If you have never repented of your sin. And placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Today he offers you the gift of forgiveness. And eternal life. But you must come through Jesus Christ. You lay hold of it by faith. Admitting that he's holy, and you are not. If you are already a believer in Jesus Christ, but you have not been living like it, and it's been your choice to not live like it, God will not be mocked. Confess your sin and return to him while you have that chance, while he gives you the breath of life to turn to him. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're like me, you want to live the way God wants you to live, but you struggle with sin and guilt creeps into your mind. I'm guessing this is most of us here today. Remember, He has secured your peace with God. Through Christ, He sees you as holy. You came by faith to Jesus Christ. Now live by faith in light of that. He still sees you as holy because of Jesus Christ. Your own sin, the world, your friends, the devil, whatever, may discourage you and tempt you. But remember, he still sees you as holy as long as you are in Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Prepare our hearts.